Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, This month begins a very special series on the life of Joseph. The story of Joseph greatly reveals the love and power of God to bring his faithful servant through trial, misunderstanding, and triumph. Joseph was one of those men whose life follows the principles in the life of Christ. Listen carefully, and perhaps you can see your own experience, or the experience you need, reflected in his life. Perhaps you will better understand why God allows bad things to happen to good people in fulfilling His larger designs. His plan for your life may well pass through the same kinds of troubles as Joseph did. It has lessons for us all. We may not send you the whole series in consecutive months. We may interrupt it for other timely messages as events in our world unfold. But we will keep coming back to the life of Joseph until we have finished it. God bless you as you enjoy this special series of messages. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we open our Bibles and study the life of one of the great heroes of faith, I pray that you will use it to help us make sense of the things that happen to us in this wicked world. Help us to understand the personal tragedies and treachery that sometimes happens to us in light of your plan. Please help us grow in our experience with Jesus through this study of trial and triumph. May we, too, see that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His high and holy purpose. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 37th chapter of Genesis. Here begins the story of Joseph, son of Jacob. We'll begin with verses 1 and 2. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. As a lad, Joseph no doubt spent much time at his grandfather Isaac's knee, listening to the tales that Isaac loved to tell. Isaac was old and blind, but his mind was keen and sharp and full of memories. He loved to recall the wonderful providences of God in dealing with him. Joseph knew well the stories in the lives of his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob. He listened intently to the wonderful promises of God, the intervention of God that saved Isaac's life on Mount Moriah when the ram in the thicket took his place on the altar. 
He listened to the story of the night of wrestling that his father had with the angel and how his name was changed to Israel. These lessons were full of importance, and he contemplated the God in heaven who loved him and whose hand had silently guided his ancestors through the trials and difficulties of faith. He listened as they told him of the amazing promises of God to his family, that they would be as many in number as the stars of heaven, and would bring great blessing to all the earth, and especially that through their family would come the Savior of the world. He learned of a heavenly Father whose plan was formed from eternity and whose purpose knew no haste and no delay. Joseph sensed that he was part of that plan and began to stretch his faith and believe God's promises. He no doubt felt sorrow at the mistakes his father had made in deceiving Isaac into blessing him with the birthright instead of his uncle Esau. Joseph's heart thrilled as he heard how God had been with his father in the desert, as he fled in fear and as he lay on the rock pillow and dreamed of the ladder to heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. All of this Joseph cherished in his heart. God was becoming real to him. He learned about obedience to God, even when God doesn't reveal his purposes. In the stories of Mount Moriah and Jacob's exile, he learned that God sometimes asks things of us that we don't understand, and that we have to trust Him, even when our hearts are torn with sorrow and grief. Joseph must have thought about what it meant to obey God implicitly and immediately without expecting an explanation. Joseph loved his father and his grandfather very much and wanted the same kind of experience with God that they had. He loved God, but he longed for some deeper experience that would give him the certainty that he too was guided by the hand of God. Joseph learned that when God comes into human lives, it is so they can cooperate with him in carrying out his will and purposes, and make them his agents in great enterprises and important projects in his cause. Youthful Joseph certainly sensed that God had his destiny all planned out, and he could hardly wait to find out what it was. But in his heart he knew that the only course in life was to leave himself in the hands of God and follow his will no matter what the consequences. That decision was the turning point. He was thrilled by the prospect of interaction with the God of heaven, but he was alone in this decision. His brothers didn't share his love for God. My friends, it is a great encouragement to know that God is watching over you, that He has a plan for your life, and that He will make you His agent. It is a wonderful thing for a youth to discover His purpose. You can know God's plan and your reason for being in this world. He will give you a vision, an understanding of your calling. The sooner you make the decision to love and honor God above all else, the sooner He can reveal your mission. There's no accident in your life. All is providentially ordered by the God who has marked out a path for your feet and is training you for your mission.
no matter what the perplexity, no matter what the grief or pain, no matter what the trial or sorrow, you can rest assured that God has ordained it for your good and your ultimate happiness. You can trust Him, even when things are not going well. You can trust that He will make of you what He needs you to become so that you can fulfill the destiny that He has for you. When Isaac died, Joseph was probably around 17 years of age. What a sad day that must have been for the lad who so loved his grandfather. No doubt he wept as he watched his father and Uncle Esau bury his childhood companion. His mother had died when he was only a small boy, and Isaac had been perhaps his closest friend beside his father. God had a plan to develop Joseph, a plan by which he would learn to fully depend on God and to plant his stake on God's side. To begin, God had to separate him from his family, and especially his brother's evil influence. Joseph loved his brothers, but that love was immature and needed to be developed in such a way as to make Joseph realistic and more objective. Jacob loved Joseph most and showed it openly. This was cause for jealousy. Joseph was the firstborn son of his beloved Rachel. The scripture says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Jacob had experienced favoritism himself and should have known better than to repeat his parents' mistakes. But the old adage, like father, like son, was at play. It is a common thing for children to be the same as their parents in both good and bad characteristics. That coat would be the source of great trouble for Joseph, but also the source of great opportunity for God. Little did Joseph know when he put on that handsome coat for the first time how it would affect him or where it would lead him. That coat was a brilliant work of art. No one else in the family had such a coat. But it was more than beautiful. It was a coat that was the type worn by royalty. It was probably embroidered with colorful designs and obviously was not a working man's coat. Moreover, it was a coat of state, representing authority and rulership. It was the coat of a prince, setting him apart and placing him on a pedestal as his brother's supervisor. It separated them and was a mark of his superiority. In these times, the father's will was law. Jacob made it clear that their younger brother was to inherit the rich birthright and all the spiritual and temporal authority that went with it. He was to rule the family. His brothers were uncivilized shepherds. Joseph was now presented to them as if he was better than they. How could they understand it otherwise? As Joseph proudly wore his coat, they saw a conceit that needed humbling. But could it be that in some way this was God's first step in telling Joseph his destiny? 
God was about to awaken in Joseph thoughts and feelings that he had never had before. He was going to teach him some things that would indeed humble him under the rod of injustice, but would at the same time prepare him for his ultimate calling as Savior of the race. But there were other things that his brothers didn't like about Joseph. They were evil men. Verse 2 says that Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. His new position in the family meant that he was responsible to his father to report what his brothers did. No doubt this made Joseph feel superior to his brothers. But Jacob feared their conduct would bring disaster upon the whole family. Notice what Jacob tells Simeon and Levi in Genesis 34, verse 30. Ye, ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. They shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. Jacob probably felt that the only one he could trust with the birthright was Joseph. This set of circumstances had tainted his brother's attitude, and the public statement made by the beautiful coat converted their anger into deadly hatred. Because Jacob set Joseph over his older brothers, he was to report on their well-being and make sure that they faithfully carried out their responsibilities. Joseph may well have been in a very awkward position, but he was the only one that Jacob could trust not to fall in with their evil deeds. While it may not have been wise for Jacob to put Joseph in this position, it may have been the only thing he could do. Remember, God was working behind the scenes to save the whole tribe through Joseph, and these circumstances were his agency to bring that about. The scripture says in verse 4 that when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. His brothers accounted his faithfulness as treason because he would not support them in their evil deeds. That is always the way it is. Those who do the right, those who are faithful, are often accused of things they do not do. The evildoers must find ways to discredit the faithful one so that they don't look so evil. They do this by surmising, misrepresentation, and outright falsehood. Have you ever experienced that? Has anyone ever misrepresented your good intentions and made them appear as if they are evil? Imagine what it must have been like to always have your brothers angry at you. Nothing you can do to appease their wrath. No words can soothe the troubled waters. The resentment just oozes out of them. In every word, every look, even the body language gives the telltale signs of hostility. Have you ever had anyone treat you that way in revenge for something that wasn't even your fault? Joseph must have been awfully perplexed. What should he do? How should he respond? If you have these kinds of things happen to you, and you probably have if you have lived long enough, what should you do? Well, you need to do what Joseph did. Just keep on doing what's right. It seemed that when things could not get worse, they did. 
Joseph had a dream. Then he had another one. Since the controversy in the home of Jacob was over the authority of Joseph, he may have been rather triumphal in telling his brothers the dreams in vindication of his role. Perhaps he thought that telling them would bolster his authority. Have you ever perceived that others didn't like you or trust you? You probably wanted to find ways to affirm your position to them. If so, then you probably know how Joseph must have felt. Behold, he said, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. Then he told them the other dream about the sun, moon, and eleven stars all bowing down to him. Perhaps Joseph, in his youthful naivety, didn't understand the hearts of his brothers or the effect of telling them the dreams. Imagine the indignation in the hearts of his brothers when they heard Joseph's dreams. What impudence, they must have thought. What arrogance. Who does Joseph think he is, so full of himself, that he thinks he has authority over us? Imagine he thinks we're going to worship him. And they hated him yet the more, the scripture says. You know how family talk goes. Imagine them ridiculing him. Joseph, one would say, you're a control freak. You have it so much in your subconscious that you even dream about it. What conceited nonsense, another would say. Can't you get these foolish ideas out of your head? We're not going to worship you. We're supposed to worship God, and you're not God. What makes you think that you're going to rule over us, Joseph? Said yet another. That's verse 8. They must have thought that Joseph was suffering from some form of mental instability. Even his father took him to task. Verse 10 says, His father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? Though Jacob was astonished, he knew what dreams meant and he sensed God was trying to tell them all something. On one hand, God needed Joseph to begin to understand his life's calling and mission, but on the other, Joseph was proud and self-centered. God needed to cut him down so that he could learn to wield power with gentleness and meekness. Jacob, we are told, observed the saying. He respected the message even if he didn't understand its true meaning. God was indeed trying to tell Joseph that he was destined to a high honor. A day would come when he would be vindicated and they would indeed bow down to him. God's purpose was to get Joseph to think about his future. Joseph's brothers couldn't stand it any longer. They decided to go far away and told their father they were going to Shechem, about 50 miles north of Hebron. This was the place where they had killed all the grown males many years before because the son of their prince had raped their sister Dinah. No doubt Jacob feared what might happen to his sons. No doubt the brothers all knew that they could not stay long in Shechem, but they had to get away from Joseph. As time passed and no word came back to Jacob about his sons, he began to worry, eventually becoming alarmed. Finally, he sent Joseph to find them. 
He never imagined that he would not see Joseph for at least twenty years, nor did he realize the grief that he was soon to suffer. We are told in verse 14 that he sent him out of the vale of Hebron. Joseph was sent from his secure, happy home in the valley of Hebron to find his separated and alienated brethren. This reminds me of how God the Father sent his Son out of the secure, happy home in heaven to find his lost brethren. He was abused and mistreated in order to show his self-sacrificing love and redeem the lost race. Joseph, too, was abused and mistreated. Perhaps it is easy to see that Joseph was a type of Christ. In fact, you can see throughout the story that there are many similarities between Joseph and Jesus. When Joseph came to Shechem, he learned that his brothers had moved farther north to Dothan, another twenty miles. No doubt they wanted to get as far away from him as possible, and they often contemplated how they might get rid of Joseph and his hated dreams. They could hardly wait for the opportunity to do something about him, and they cherished a grudge against Joseph. Meanwhile, God was getting Joseph ready for powerful events and to make Joseph his agent in accomplishing his purposes. Israel was presently a small family of uncivilized nomads, but they were to grow and become a large civilized nation. For the moment, they were not much more than barbarians. God needed to increase their numbers and in the process put them in connection with the greatest and most civilized nation on earth at the time, so that they could learn how to be civilized. Let us remember that God works in the shadows, and His plans uh, are laid out long in advance. Like the smallest streams that eventually become mighty rivers, God works in seemingly small ways that set in motion mighty changes. He sees the future, and he knows just what to do to make his purposes work out for the good of his cause and the good of his people. God could have just told Jacob to move to Egypt, but he had a larger purpose. He also wanted Egypt to learn of the God of heaven. He loved the Egyptians, and he understood their thinking. He knew that they needed a godly ruler to lead them to a knowledge of God. But moving to Egypt was a major undertaking. Though it was part of God's plan of salvation, it was surrounded with enormous difficulties and required extraordinary means to bring it about. God had to make of them a great nation and as uncountable as the stars. This could not be done in Canaan. So long as the family remained small there, there would be no problems with the surrounding tribes. But eventually their size would result in suspicion about their ambitions to take over Canaan. Under the control of jealousy and even hatred, their neighbors would resent the Israelites' peculiarities and alien customs, as well as a different god. Their semi-barbarian neighbors would suspect that these people wanted to take over their land and become their masters. Collision between them and the tribes around them would place the family of Jacob in jeopardy. 
Conflict and even war would likely result in hampering the growing nation. God knew that he needed to take Israel out of Canaan for a time to allow them to grow into a large nation. They could live in the land of Goshen down in Egypt without molestation. And considering the prejudices of the Egyptians against all foreigners, and shepherds in particular, they would leave them alone. They could grow quickly into the magnitude of a nation. God would then bring them out of Egypt back to the land of Canaan and fulfill his promises to them. God uses our circumstances to bring about his purposes. Joseph's princely coat, his dreams, the jealousy, malice, and envy of his brothers were all part of God's arrangements to bring the family down to Egypt. God had predicted it to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, God told Abraham that his descendants would be afflicted 400 years and come out with great substance. Do you think that God has that kind of plan for your life? God has plans for each of us. Perhaps you have no knowledge of what God is planning for you or how God is leading you, but He is. You can be sure of that. So long as you follow His advice, He will use you in a mighty way. Sometimes He takes us through very difficult circumstances to get us to the position where He can really use us. Often we make mistakes and He has to correct us, but He is leading. Sometimes that path that God has marked out for us is neither easy nor short, but it will get us there. We can certainly trust Him. Joseph finally found his brothers. Verse 18 says that they saw him afar off. They knew who he was. After all, he was wearing this coat of authority, and there was no mistaking it. Their hatred was rekindled. We are also told that even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. Their malice was so deep that they were even willing to kill their own brother. Do you see what can happen when you cherish anger or envy? Anger and envy leads to hatred and even to murder. Joseph's brothers said in verse 19 and onward, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit, and we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Their malice knew no bounds. They were preparing to ambush Joseph and deal with him treacherously. But God moved upon the heart of Reuben. Let us not kill him, he said. Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him. Reuben was the oldest of the brothers. He knew that he had a responsibility to his father to protect the family. He secretly planned to help Joseph escape and go home to his father. But sin loves company, and when wicked people get together, they strengthen each other in sinful boldness. A gang mentality develops, and most just go along and even egg the others on, especially when abusing someone they don't like. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever been part of it? In my own experience, I can remember times when I refused to come to the defense of someone who was being abused by others. 
when perhaps by a clear word in his defense the whole matter would have been dropped. It is amazing how that one righteous person can often repel the sin and prevent great wrong just by taking a stand. How often are we afraid to say a word when we should openly stand on the right side? Reuben could not be countered. As the eldest, he was respected by the others. His word was law. Surely he was angry at Joseph, for it appeared that Joseph would get the birthright that he had forfeited by his evil deeds. But his heart was not so hardened. He may have sensed that he would be held responsible for Joseph's death. When Joseph arrived, he was glad to see his brothers, but they were not happy to see him. They had come here to Dothan to get as far away as they could from him, and now he had tracked them down in his coat, no less. The first thing his brothers did was strip him of that hated coat, the symbol of authority and favoritism. They had to get rid of that coat. That coat was the cause of all their troubles and their anger with Joseph. Joseph had to be shown that he was not going to rule over them, even if he had seen it in a dream. So the coat was stripped from him first. The pit where they threw Joseph was probably one of many dry cisterns in that region. They are bottle-shaped with a narrow top, and without help one cannot escape. Perhaps you can imagine Joseph's feelings as he was roughly treated by his angry brothers. He pled with them to let him go back to his father. He pled for food and water, but none came. They threw him into the pit and then sat down to eat bread, verse 25 says. Yet even in the pit, God was watching over Joseph, don't you think? God loved Joseph, but why didn't he intervene? God knew that Joseph needed to learn the lessons of dependence on God, especially in the worst of times even under injustice and oppression. God was training Joseph to trust him implicitly. Joseph must have been heartbroken and confused. He pled with his brothers not to hurt him. He begged them to take him out of the pit, but they refused to listen. As he sat in the bottom of the pit, he wept over the cruelty of his brothers. He had just endured the difficulties and dangers of travel. He had wearied himself bringing them the best delicacies his father had given him for them. How could they treat him like this? How could they be so cruel? They sat down to eat, leaving him to starve. Later his brothers spoke of his anguish. We saw the anguish of his soul, they said, when he besought us and we would not hear. Genesis 42, verse 1. No doubt Joseph's mind was terrified by the stern reality of the pit that was now his prison. This is not the last time Joseph would be down in prison. So God was getting him used to injustice and abuse. If he were to be the ruler one day, he must rule with compassion, knowing the sorrows and understanding the experience of the common man was essential to being a wise ruler. Likewise with Christ. The only way that Christ could minister to fallen man was to become like them and be one of them. Earthly rulers can hardly be trusted. We have an underlying suspicion about them. 
they are often not perceived as being one with the people and understanding their plight. But as a ruler, Christ can have the confidence of his subjects because he was one of them. God knew that Joseph needed to suffer too, to mature him and make him truly noble. The idea of suffering is foreign to our thinking, and suffering unjustly is even more foreign. We usually don't expect it, let alone desire it. Yet God ordains it for our good. He knows that without experiencing injustice, we will never understand what He went through, and we will never be able to comprehend His great love and sacrifice for us. Through injustice, God allows us to enter into His suffering. This matures us. It deepens our experience with Christ. Because through suffering, Jesus teaches us to overcome feelings of bitterness, hatred, revenge, and teaches us to cling to Him. It is very interesting to note that every time Joseph comes up out of prison, it is with a new ministry, a new calling, a new station in life. And how true this is in our own lives. When we go through a crisis, we come up different. When we are baptized with the baptism of suffering, we come up to a work that is waiting for us. God often changes circumstances in our lives to broaden us and to deepen us. He breaks up our fallow ground so that we are refreshed in His love and power and energized to do His work. I know from my own experience how God does this. When God cuts me down, it is so that He can raise me up to a new walk and a new work for Him. If I wallow in bitterness, I cannot do what He has appointed me. If I harbor or cherish the spirit of hatred and revenge, I lose the blessing of a fresh opportunity to serve God and influence others for the truth. The miracle that is wrought through suffering is a thrilling thing. You get to overcome feelings that are deeply rooted in the depths of your soul, some that you may not even know about. Isn't that wonderful? There in the pit, Joseph must have remembered the stories of his father and his grandfather. How that God had always protected them and had delivered them from their distresses and difficulties. He turned to God and pled with him for deliverance. Listen to this mighty scripture for the last generation. When thou art in tribulation... And all these things are come upon thee. Even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them." Though Reuben was impulsive and unstable, yet he planned to deliver Joseph and went off to tend to other matters, planning to return when his brothers were gone and release him. But God was in the shadows again. He was prepared for this. At just the right moment, he sent deliverance. But deliverance from what? 
Joseph was to be delivered from the malice of his brothers, but certainly not in the way he had hoped. In fact, even more discouraging circumstances were about to unfold. Sending him back home would not have delivered him from his brothers. God took Joseph out of the hands of his brothers completely and sent him where he could fulfill Joseph's ultimate destiny. The scripture says that Joseph's brothers lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. Imagine that, ancient truckers on the freeway headed southbound. Flag them down, said Judah. What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. There is always a business-minded entrepreneur in the crowd, someone that knows how to make money. Selling Joseph was better than slaying Joseph. This would be a good bit of business with a little personal gain attached. Judah presents pious language and argues the virtues of selling him. Well, he's our brother and our flesh. It would be wrong to kill him. So let's sell him into slavery. At least that way we'll have some money to spend and we won't be guilty of killing him, but we will be rid of him. Imagine the betrayal that is about to happen to Joseph. Here is a punishment worse than death. It is bad enough to be sold as a slave at the behest of his brethren, but to sell him to the Ishmaelites? That was treason. Who were the Ishmaelites? These were the sons of Ishmael, the other son of Abraham, the son of a slave. Now Joseph, the son of the free, is sold as a slave to the very ones who had been cast out of the home of Abraham. The Ishmaelites were always in contention with the family of Jacob. The angel's prediction to Hagar in Genesis 16, verse 12, was no doubt known to them. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Even in, the, in modern times we can see this. Perhaps the most barbaric cruelties have been done by the sons of Ishmael, and truly his hand is against every man, and every man's hand is against him. Think of Islam and its methods of dealing with its opponents. It is constant strife. For Joseph to be sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites was a terrible insult. These were half-cousins. For his brothers to do this was like rubbing salt in a wound. Far from mercy, this was cruelty at its worst. Judah negotiated with these tradesmen, and for twenty pieces of silver, Joseph became their possession, chained to other slaves, their chattel. Remember now, Joseph is way north from Hebron nearly 70 miles. He was now to travel south to Egypt, right near Hebron. His heart wrung with anguish. His soul was devastated by the thought that he might never see his father again. His mind began to work. Perhaps there would be a rescue attempt, and he would be delivered from the hands of the Ishmaelites. 
But as the miles passed by, and as the hills separating between them and Hebron faded in the distance, he lost all hope of rescue. Anguish seized him. Now his heart was ripped from his home and family. He was torn from his father, his brother Benjamin, and all that was familiar and dear to him. Now all he had was his memories. All he had was the stories of his father and grandfathers. His anguish knew no bounds. He wept and wept as his heart was rent by the thought of his great loss. Have you ever had that depth of anguish? Perhaps you have. Have you ever experienced the pain of alienation and separation? Perhaps you have felt the helplessness that Joseph felt. Have you ever wondered, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? I have. It is awful. Yet it is also wonderful and powerful. When you see God cut with a knife right through your own soul, you can know that even in the anguish, God is speaking to you. He is molding and shaping you. He knows that without pain to humble us, we will never learn how to love heaven. Without suffering, we can never let go of earth. He knows that injustice cuts our affections for this world, and he must cut us down as he did Joseph so he can raise us up. But there was one thing Joseph did have. He had the stars. Late at night, he would lie awake, looking at the stars in the dark sky. There is something about stars that is comforting. They are light in the darkness. They are hope in the hopelessness. They are courage in despair. They are strength to the weary. You can look up to the stars and know that there is a greater power, an unseen power, watching over all and guiding the stars and other celestial bodies in their orbits. It is encouraging because we are reminded that God does the same for us. Living in the cities, you can't see the stars so clearly. You have to be away from the lights that drown them out. You have to be out where there are no other distractions to be able to see them and draw courage from them. But they are there, and you can by faith know that the God of the stars is by your side, even when you can't see them. Let us also not forget that the sovereign of the universe is not thwarted by hatred, malice, enmity, cruelty, or the intentions of evil men. God finds ways to use their evil motives and purposes to bring about his own designs. God could not have accomplished for Joseph what he wanted to if he did not tear him from his comfort zone, remove him from his family, and place him at the mercy of foreigners who knew not the one he served. God needed to cut him down so he could mature him. God needed to make him a man of courage, faith, and confidence in God, particularly if he was going to lead the nation of Egypt. Do you think God might have a large purpose for you too? If you're going through trials, you can be sure of it. The greater the trials, the greater must be your work. Even if they are trials as a result of your own sin, God uses them to mature you and prepare you. 
He will give you a work to do for Him. Even if you've made mistakes, God will use them to grow you and strengthen you for your duty. As Joseph looked at the stars, he suddenly remembered the promise God had made to his grandfather Abraham. Genesis 15.5 says that God brought Abraham out of his tent and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Joseph then was part of this promise because he was of the seed of Abraham. But how does all this trouble fit into that promise, he wondered. It was as much a promise to him as it was to his father's. This was encouraging. Joseph was stripped of all he had. His coat was gone. His dignity was crushed. His self-respect and pride were dashed. He was a slave. He could not now inherit his father's possessions, nor could he inherit the spiritual birthright as he had hoped. To his mind, all this was gone. He could only look up at the stars and think of the promises of God to him. As a child, he had accepted those promises as his own, but now they were put to the test. Would he trust God as his father and grandfathers had done? Hope was gone. The pit in his stomach had replaced the pit in Dothan. Everything seemed black and fearful, yet when he looked at the stars, he sensed a presence by his side. Could that be the presence of God, the same God of his father's? Could it be the nearness of the one that had been with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their trials? Yes, indeed. If the promise of the stars was for him too, then God would be with him, just like he was with them. Joseph determined in his heart that if he was going to Egypt, he would work for God. Whatever he was asked to do, he would do it as if he were getting instructions from God himself. No matter what trials and difficulties to which he would be exposed, he would honor God and trust Him. The pit in his stomach left him. Peace entered his heart at last, and he slept. In the morning when the sun came up over the eastern hills, Joseph was ready. With courage he could face the prospects of the future. He needed no one but God. Now he could let go of his human ambitions and plans. God had taken control of him. He stood erect and confident. No longer discouraged, he walked with a spring in his step and a song in his heart. He must have made quite an impression on the Ishmaelites and other slaves. Hope filled his heart. Ever after, whenever discouragement threatened him, he would go out at night and look at the stars. He could pray and ask God for guidance and courage to face the difficulties. Injustice was actually the salvation of Joseph. Without it, he could not have fulfilled God's plan. My friend, this is a thrilling lesson for us. The promise of the stars of heaven is for us. It is very comforting to know that no matter what our trials God will stand by our side. As long as the stars shine at night, we can take courage in God. Those promises are for us. They are for our encouragement, our sense of the presence of God. 
Meanwhile, Joseph's brothers concocted a story using the despised coat as a prop for their charade. They killed a goat, dipped it in its blood, and went to their father. The grief that swept over Jacob was enormous. He could not but assume that Joseph was dead. His heart was rent, and his anguish could not be extinguished. Joseph's brothers were shocked at the grief, but they dared not tell him the truth. For more than two decades, they had to bear the pain of watching their father grieve, knowing that his sorrow was their own fault. The burden of guilt was enormous. Yet even Jacob did not see or understand the purposes of God to deliver him from one more crisis. We'll study that one later. My friends, go out on a dark night and look at the stars. You will see the same heavens that Joseph saw. You will feel the same presence of the same God that Joseph felt. You too can sense that God will be with you in whatever trials and hardships you face. No matter what strained relationships you may have, take courage, look at the stars. No matter what financial troubles you may have, take courage, look at the stars. No matter who mistreats you, take courage, look at the stars. God is there. He is your friend. He loves you and promises to see you through. Look at the stars. Take courage. There is hope in all the hopelessness. There is cheer in all the sadness. There is strength in all the weakness. There is God. The same God that spoke with Abraham will speak with you. The God that worked to bring Joseph to Egypt and make him the prime minister is the same God that will work behind the scenes, in the shadows, to make your life worth far more than you could ever imagine. He will make you one of his special agents in the last generation. Take courage. Look at the stars. God is looking for Joseph's today. Are you one of them? Are you willing to suffer with Christ as Joseph did? Are you willing to work for God? He needs you. He wants you. Now let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Joseph. We pray that you will help us take courage when things don't go right. Help us to look at the stars when we think we're all alone. Help us to sense your presence. You have a purpose for us. Help us to trust you as Joseph did, that you are working even through the dark times in our lives to bring about your almighty plan. Teach us to look at the stars for courage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As water to the thirsty, as beauty to the eyes, as strength that follows weakness, as truth instead of lies, as songtime and springtime and sun. Like common 
voice of clamor like peace that follows pain like me Like sunshine after rain, like moonlight and starlight and sunlight on the sea. So is my Lord, my living Lord. So is my Lord too. We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month... President Trump calls Pope Francis after Notre Dame fire. President Donald Trump and Pope Francis spoke on the phone with the president pledging to assist with the rebuilding of Notre Dame de Paris. Today, President Donald J. Trump spoke with His Holiness Pope Francis. The president offered his condolences for the destruction of the Notre Dame Cathedral, one of Europe's most important religious structures, said a readout of the call from Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Trump also commented on the cathedral's amazing beauty and great symbolism. The two leaders also spoke on matters relevant to the current crisis in Venezuela and how to best assist the people of that country during the current political crisis. 
Trump characterized the call with the Pope as a wonderful conversation on Twitter, adding that he wished the pontiff a happy Easter. Alessandro Gisotti, interim director of the Holy See Press Office, confirmed the call on Twitter. He said that Trump expressed to the Pope his closeness in the name of the American people. Since the roof of Notre Dame de Paris was destroyed, over 1 billion euros has been pledged to the rebuilding effort. Officials have proposed an architectural contest to design the cathedral's new spire. Trump previously spoke to his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, on Tuesday, expressing condolences over the tragedy of the fire and offering American help. The kings of the earth, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Revelation 18, verse 9. Next, official Swedish church tells children Jesus was queer. The diocese of Vastras A division of the Church of Sweden is now giving away an LGBTQ guide for Christian queer kids. Bible-believing Christians may be stunned to hear that this extreme guide describes Jesus as queer and Joseph as a transvestite. No, this isn't just some radical college course about the Bible. This is coming from the actual Church of Sweden. The church, which identifies as Protestant, has created what it calls a survival guide for LGBTQ youth. A Swedish news site, Naya Dagbladet, states the church's guide contains definitions and concepts, a bit about the Bible and LGBTQ, as well as Bible stories that it claims are related to LGBTQ people. The guide goes on to contradict scripture by stating that the Bible is actually not against homosexuality, implying scriptures dealing with it are actually about exploration or rape. The guide also includes definitions for leftist sexual terms, such as cis-person, gender-fluid, non-binary, queer, two-sex norm, rainbow fairs, and more. It states Jesus' mother Mary dared to break traditional sex norms in a patriarchal society. And the biblical character of Joseph is described as a person who breaks the norms in terms of gender expression and probably went in a suit intended for a king's daughter. Jesus is described as someone who broke the norm, calling him queer for the way he lived his life. Also, the guide states that he did not defend the traditional family. This is part of a growing support for LGBTQ values within left-leaning segments of the church. Different denominations have battled internally with approving gay clergy. And CBN News recently reported on the Revoice Conference in the U.S., where Catholic and Protestants came together to condemn Christian versions of heteronormativity and demanded Christians to subvert straight privilege when it causes difficulties for gays. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot. Luke 17, verse 28. Next, NHS Gender Clinic performing live experiment on children. Five former staff members at an NHS gender clinic for children are warning that young people are receiving unnecessary and damaging hormone treatment. In November, the Gender Identity Development Service in London was accused of fast-tracking children through its system. An Oxford professor now says the center is performing a live experiment on children by sending them for life-changing medical intervention. GIDS has a team of medics responsible for diagnosing gender dysphoria and handing out hormone blockers. 
At the age of 16, many of the children are then issued with irreversible cross-sex hormones, which helps them change sex. Carl Hennigan, director of the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University, said GIDS were conducting an unregulated live experiment. He said the treatments they offer are supported by low-quality evidence, or in many cases, no evidence at all. One of the five whistleblowers said that the only reason she had stayed at the clinic so long was to prevent more children from being damaged by the treatment. She said, I felt for the last two years what kept me in the job was the sense that there was a huge number of children in danger. Last year, 2,519 children, some as young as three, were referred to the gender clinic. In 2010, the number was 94. Experts say the number is increasing as transgender lobby groups such as mermaids encourage vulnerable young people to push for medical intervention. Another whistleblower said mermaids are always saying this is a matter of life and death. The reality is that if you say the right trigger words, get mermaids on your side, by 11 you'll be on hormone blockers, and by 16 you'll be on hormones. That's not ethical. Earlier this year, it was revealed that GIDS had hidden results of its use of experimental puberty blockers on teenagers, The study showed that its hormone treatment could have devastating outcomes, including a significant increase in the number of adolescents who say they deliberately try to hurt or kill themselves. In an online statement, GIDS said it strongly rejects the evidence offered by the whistleblowers. Manipulating children's hormones, sometimes before they even understand what's happening to them, let alone consent to the treatment, is likely preparing these children for serious and devastating effects as well as unintended consequences. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Genesis 6, verse 12. Next, legalized infanticide. This is Keep the Faith Ministry News. I'm Hal Mayer. Strangely, as the age of viability outside the womb continues to shrink, the appetite for late-term abortions continues to grow in lands where Christian ethics once guided the moral consciences of its citizens. In late January, the state of New York passed historical legislation to decriminalize participation in late-term abortions after 24 weeks. Touted as a reproductive health option that was good for women, the law also now allows medical professionals who are not doctors to perform abortions in New York. In essence, the law allows for a mother to decide that if she doesn't want a child to live, even as that child is being born, the act of killing that child can no longer be considered a criminal act. And if a child survives an abortion, the abortion provider will not be prosecuted for killing the child. Cuomo celebrated his legislative victory by ordering that several New York landmarks, including One World Trade Center, be lit up in pink. Pro-life activists cried foul pointing out that 11 unborn children killed by the 9-11 terrorists are memorialized at the site. That's from late-term abortion, a sad, tragic choice no more, from Breakpoint. The hearts of humanity are becoming increasingly wicked and match the description Jesus gave of the world right before his return. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, verse 12. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. 
It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.